Hi and welcome to a new podcast from ECPM, the European Center for Development Policy Management. My name is Tanit Paradatur. So ecological catastrophes, slave-like conditions, and even people dying, all in the name of a corporation. It's not new that more and more businesses, including the multinational enterprises, recognize the need to have a positive social and environmental impact. Usually this takes the form of what's known as corporate social responsibility, or CSR. To discuss this today, we have Bruce Pryors with us. Bruce is Senior Policy Officer here at ECPM and is the author, together with Justin Bessems, who unfortunately couldn't join us today, of the paper entitled Graphically, Cost If You Do, Cost If You Don't, and How to Promote Responsible Business and Reporting. So welcome, Bruce. Thank you very much. So uh, cost, if you don't, cost If You Do, Cost If You Don't, as you say in the paper, and indeed one of the main messages that can be read through it is the need and the challenge of finding a balance. So balance between incentives and disincentives for business to behave responsibly or carrots and sticks, as you say as well, and also balance between voluntary and mandatory. Uh, however, to find this balance, it's not an easy task. Why is that? Um, well, that's a, a, a tricky question to start with. But I think maybe maybe the point to make before that is that the, the way that this paper was, was written was kind of coming from the, the perspective of policymakers, uh, principally in sort of European countries or developed countries who are trying to engage with their own private sector who are operating in developing countries. So the, the, the idea for the, for the paper originally was uh, to try and help inform policymakers deal with how harsh or not they should be in trying to make demands on their own companies when they're operating abroad. So this is where so the, so the title sort of cost if you do, cost if you don't was actually uh, came from the original question which was put to us was about sort of what are the costs uh, that, are, that are related to sort of demanding mandatory reporting from firms. Um, and I guess the, the the challenge that you point to then of trying to find a balance essentially comes from that because there's always a trade-off between requesting high standards which sort of in an ideal world everybody would be able to adhere to but in, in, in reality also impose costs not only for the firm but also for those who are required to, to, to enforce those costs. So I think one of the one of the things that the paper comes out with is not just that there's that there needs to be take care taken to look at the incentives and sort of finding these carrots and sticks, but it's really that when operating in developing countries, the enforcement mechanisms there are completely different. So it's much it's much harder to hold firms to account, even when they are signed up to some kind of CSR scheme. So even when you have voluntary schemes and firms are sort of professing that they're doing well, it's very difficult to check if that's really the case. So the balance then is to kind of try and build on the good behavior of many firms. And there is a growing uh, sort of trend of especially large multinational firms and especially visible firms, sort of firms that are consumer facing, uh, to engage much more proactively in having a, a sustainable social and environmental impact. So that... Those firms and the good efforts of those firms have to be taken into account, but they all, at the same time, taking into account other firms are less proactive. Uh, the costs in becoming sort of more sustainable may be higher. Reporting across different kinds of firms may be higher depending on the sector they operate in. So these kind of different nuances about the kinds of firms, the kind of sector, the kind of country that's being operated in, 
all effectively have to be taken into account. And that's why sort of the in a way, the, the non-surprising conclusion of the paper is indeed that, that there are all these different balances that need to be taken into account. Yeah, also in your paper, you mentioned uh, a few times specific amount of uh, money that was calculated maybe from the US for the Dodd-Frank Act for the extractives industry. How can we really force businesses to comply if it's it's so hard to tell them how much it's going to cost, no? that they can yeah. really like make sure that they have the, the, the money necessary for it? Well, that. I mean, although the cost was kind of the, the initial question, I think we... we Carrying out the work, we very quickly kind of came to the conclusion that the cost of compliance wasn't really the main key factor. Um, the more you speak to people who, who are sort of from the private sector and from those working in some of the, 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 the larger schemes, sort of the, the global compact, etc., what you pick up is that even for firms, the risk associated with sort of poor CSR or, or poor social and, and environmental behavior is so high that, in effect, sort of improving processes and improving reporting behaviour is almost now considered just a st- another additional standard business cost, the same as sort of production inputs, the same as paying salaries, etc. So ensuring that production is being carried out in a, in a socially and environmentally sort of positive way is now almost just part of the, the, the costs that need to be taken into account anyway. So I think the the, the 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 cost story was a starting point, but it's but it's then we quickly came to the point that it's not really sort of the, the be all and end all. But in terms of, I mean, that's not to say that there aren't costs associated with trying to 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 be more socially responsible, etc. And I think what the paper points to precisely, and one of the challenges, for example, in the Dodd Frank Act, is that if you have to trace or prove the origins of every single microscopic uh, metallic input through very complex value chains, then yes, indeed, there, there, there are high costs associated with that. And from a developmental point of view, because ultimately, I mean, the context of all this is is trying to see where these companies can have a positive impact on development. So if we begin to sort of cut off value chains and, and uh, punish firms where we're perhaps requiring too much information and therefore you're, you're actually reducing jobs and employment within developing countries, then we're in a, in a difficult situation. Um, so even though those costs are there, I think that the, the, the point you make about consumer power is an important one, but the, po- the, the difficulty is that it's only across specific sectors. Mm-hmm. And what we still see, and, and it's in the newspapers pretty regularly, is, is the fact that in Europe, as in probably the US and elsewhere, consumers still generally want to have uh, cheap, cheap goods. Um, so that's why, again, we come back to the, 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 the role of policymakers within this is that indeed there is an influence of consumers in, in holding firms to account. Transparency around firm practices can help this. But that's where, so that's kind of where the reporting role comes in and why sort of reporting can be a good thing. But if there's very little enforcement, which is a little bit the, the sort of the downside of, of existing voluntary mechanisms, then there's not much that takes place if a firm is not upholding it, its own commitments. That again comes back to the policymakers and what they could be doing in terms of moving from much more of a soft law approach which is these codes of conduct and principles, etc., to something which is more built into hard law, where firms can be held accountable in their own in their own country. Now, again, that again brings all, a whole range of other issues, which are far more of a legal nature about where are the legal jurisdictions that uh, that, that apply, 
uh, which courts are willing to accept these cases. So it's, it's, it certainly doesn't resolve issues by simply sort of asking for more information. But I think it does put pressure on firms, especially the lagging firms, to, uh, to actually be more, much more accountable about the way that they, they, they carry out their business. Yeah, I don't want to, to sound too pessimistic, but it looks to me like mandatory reporting, it's not the ideal solution and, and it's not uh, ideal either the, the um, voluntary one, because if it's mandatory in developing countries, very easily they will not be held accountable because there are not the, the, the legal structures to do so. And then voluntary reporting, uh, well, as the word says, it's it's voluntary, so you don't really have to do it. So then what's what's the solution is there? It seems like it's a bit frustrating. Well, I mean, there's more and more work being done on the third pillar of the UN guiding principles. And, and the third pillar is about access to justice. And this is where there are more and more discussions going on about the willingness of European countries, for example, or courts in European countries to take on cases for abuses which have taken place in third countries. And I think there's more and more recognition that up to now that this has been quite difficult. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not a legal expert, but there are definitely there are cases that have managed to be brought to court through NGOs who have lobbied on behalf of victims in UK courts, for example. Uh, for for damages done in Tanzania in, in in gold mining, now that was a long process. It was a complex process, but eventually they won the case. Um, so in a way, as we kind of become more globalized and as you have more of these linkages between sort of and more in a way more coherence between um, sort of developed country policies and their different practices and how their companies operate abroad, then there are more opportunities. And putting those into practice then means that you need to then sort of work around sort of how, what needs to be put in place to allow this kind of access to justice to take place. I mean, one of the cases which I think kind of illustrates things quite well is, I think it was even the Tanzania case, where uh, the mining company had actually, was actually had a contract with the local police as their security, as they're basically providing security. So this meant, though, that, of course, when abuse took place, then it was very difficult to distinguish between the police who were actually providing security and the legal system, which was basically had been sort of coerced into this, into the way the mine was operating. So there you obviously need to step out a little bit. And that's where sort of the, the fact that UK courts were able to take the case on provided an, a different opportunity. And I think that in the long term, I mean, you kind of talked about sort of the perfect world sort of thing. In the long term, ideally, it's the developing country governments themselves and their own uh, legal systems that are able to take these on. That's, so I think one of the sort of difficulties, again, in, in, in finding balances here is, is how to provide a system that doesn't completely remove responsibility from the, the, the courts in, within developing countries. Um, and that's where sort of, I, th I think it has to be sort of a combination of these different things, of more information, of more consumer pressure, perhaps of more reporting on more sort of targeted demands, perhaps, on specific types of firms. I mean, I think that's where we try to come down at the end, is that the distinctions between the different sectors and the different sizes of firms operating in different countries themselves require different forms of treatment. Um, and at the moment, Sort of, there's a huge range of these voluntary voluntary schemes. So many sort of beginning to overlap with each other. A growing number of mandatory reporting requirements um, that, in a way, it's it's creating sort of much more complexity for firms, 
Um, so maybe also defeating the purpose. So maybe the, the, the idea needs to be to kind of try and harmonize some of these different schemes and, and, and sort of raise the bar slightly, perhaps, to, to catch some of the la- lagging firms, improve the enforcement mechanisms, um, but also have something which is a bit easier for firms to deal with in a way. So that's where the, the, the whole carrots and sticks thing kind of comes in, basically from the observation that if something is completely against uh, current practices or, or incentives, then the people who it's targeted at are more likely to find ways around it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was a little bit kind of where we came down at the end was, well, if it's not incentive compatible, then it's going to be difficult to apply. Yeah, it's a very, very graphic way to put it, the carrots and stick. Um, and you also mentioned the right regulatory mix. No, I think this balance between mandatory and uh, voluntary. But how would governments in developing countries deal with that? Um, well, I mean, in most, in most countries, they generally have the legal frameworks in place to protect sort of workers' rights and protect the environment. Um, so in a way, I mean, it's not that those things are absent. Uh, the other, I mean, the other point is that for companies themselves, very often, I mean, this goes back to the point I was making before about the, the they themselves are, are building in their own, sort of they build risks into their own business model. So my sense is that more and more, or you get less and less firms essentially sort of trying to abuse the system. It's more that, it's almost more that they're trying to, they realize that they need this sort of license, that they talk about license to operate. It's basically they need to make sure that especially the local community around where business takes place see some benefits from having this large industry in their backyard. Otherwise, the sort of the political risks are quite high. Um, so, I mean, there are, of course, cases of sabotage from local communities who feel that their, that their own resources are being taken away. There are positive cases from firms where they are working to not only sort of provide perhaps sort of, uh, sort of minimal social services or something around their, 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 their factories and things, but go beyond that into sort of building the community or bringing the community further into the way the business operates. I mean, that itself can be seen as a bit of a token effort. Uh, it's also perhaps sort of almost creates too much dependency in some cases. Um, and there is a case again for saying that, well, in fact, if some of these big multinational businesses would just pay their taxes within the country that they're in, then this would also already sort of do away with some of the big issues that are there. But then it comes back a lot to, to, to governance issues again within the country. So even if you have these measures in place, Putting them into practice then depends a lot on sort of where the the way that the government's the government operates, uh, in a way the level of importance that's placed on on this. Um, obviously, corruption can be a can be an issue, but there's also political concerns. I mean, in, in I remember a case from from DRC uh, where we, we had a meeting with somebody who was from one of the provincial governments talking about how the mines in their government in their region or their province were submitting their tax returns to the central government but because of political reasons the central government then wasn't transferring any of the money back to the province so the local population was suffering because they weren't seeing any of the benefits of the mines but it wasn't actually the mines at fault in this case it was more to do with the political issues between the, the central government and the state government so i think maybe this is part of the sort of the big complexity here is that we are indeed dealing with a lot of issues where there's not a lot of transparency but going beyond sort of institutions and, and rule of law things 
kind of take on uh, different characteristics. So sort of trying to operate within these means that companies are managing to do it, but then trying to hold them account in some way that makes sure that sort of behavior is, is, is at least avoiding harm, um, then obviously become, becomes quite complex. So indeed, local governments need to be putting the rules in place. And even if the sort of the home government of multinational companies are also putting these in place. It's, nothing is foolproof, but at least it creates a bit of a dynamic that along with private sector interest to, to, to have a good image and, and to, to also sort of lead the way in their own sectors can create something of a positive dynamic that at least goes in the right direction. And after speaking to business people and writing the whole report, are you still optimistic um, <laughs> we all want to be good, no? I guess people in big companies, they also want to be good and they want to make money, which is, uh, you know, a fair thing to do. Well, this is the thing. So I think, I mean, in a way, I guess I am more optimistic than some would be. I mean, you can't deny that there are, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, sort of terrible working conditions and environmental catastrophes. And we certainly can't deny that those are taking place. And I think... Of course, systems need to be set up to be able to, 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 to hold firms accountable for those things. But my sense, at least, is that in, in broader terms, that firms are having have increasing difficulties in sort of getting away with uh, sort of abusive practices. And partly because of what's taking place and these changes, uh, sort of policy changes within, I mean, we're focusing in European countries, but also sort of in, in a wider, wider environment. Um, maybe it's a long-term thing. It, it relates back to sort of institutional change. It, it relates back to numerous sort of sort of long historical trajectory issues, actually. So optimistic, yes, but it's it's certainly not something that's that's going to be solved uh, quickly by by a few sort of quick fixes at, at the European level. That's for sure. Okay. And, and my last question, we hear a lot about uh, private sector for development, and I was wondering if uh, when they use a, a company to sort of help the community in, in various ways, in your experience, is there any CSR practice that goes along this type of uh, arrangement? Or is this CSR sort of practices, it's something that happens separately, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't? I mean, if we're talking about donors basically financing firms, I mean, that's, or, or working with firms or to, to, to engage in development, then that's, I mean, that, in a way that was our, our, our initial interest in the topic was precisely because there is much more of an interest among donors in working with firms, which then brings into question sort of how are they selecting which firms to work with, And how do they ensure that sort of this public money that's being used goes to firms that are behaving responsibly? Um, I mean, what we can see is that donors have to have their own sets of criteria which they, they, they use for looking at the which firms they, they, they can engage with. Um, but across different countries, for a start, the criteria they use will differ. And the criteria aren't necessarily always very clear. And I think one of the challenges for, for donors precisely engaging with the private sector is that it's very difficult to find, A, all the information that you need, but B, probably to find a firm that is entirely sort of uh, morally correct in every single they stand. They are none of those. Well, between are... even those that are doing good, exceptional, sort of positive projects or work on one hand, In, in some respect or another, whether it's sort of environmental or, or some other sort of or tax, use of tax havens or use of subsidiaries to get around tax laws, 
it's a little bit depending on where you place your benchmark, uh, you might have difficulty finding sort of the, the perfect firm. I think what's beginning to be seen now amongst European donors, and we can see that, for example, amongst the Dutch, um, is sort of setting up much more targeted financing for partnerships and outward investment of, of firms. And it's not that, I mean, in principle, these are good f- firms that have to s- sort of hold themselves accountable to certain criteria. And I, and I think it's th- those are probably the, the, the kind of firms that apply for those funds are more likely to be those firms who also have a, have a strong record on, on, on being uh, environmentally and socially friendly. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, that, that I think precisely the engaging the private sector agenda really is beginning to put all this stuff much higher up the agenda. And that's, again, is, is to me part of the, this positive dynamic. We have the public getting more and more awareness. We have developing country governments who are, in a way, getting more power to, to hold firms accountable if there is the interest and in the sort of the political will uh, or the, the political alignment of, of, of interest, let's say. And from, from developing country governments and firms, there's also, or developed country governments and firms, there's also much more of this awareness of the, of the need and, and, the, and the opportunities, in fact, of of being more sort of environmentally and socially aware. So that, I mean, that's perhaps the positive note to end on is, is, is this idea that while sort of reporting and much of the, the or much of discussion around mandatory reporting and how to improve firm behavior is about minimizing harm, I think some of the cases from firms and elsewhere suggest or point more to the opportunities that are available for innovation and for really having a larger impact. So I think that the positives hopefully outweigh the negatives, and I think it's up to policymakers to try and identify where that is and, and find these right balances. Thank you, Bruce. You're welcome.